Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It's a warm September evening. The sky has darkened and a moon has risen over the flat, oily river. Hundreds of day-trippers and pleasure-seekers are aboard the Princess Alice as she steams through London. Music, singing, and the excited shouts of children give the so-called moonlight cruise a holiday feel. No one notices that the craft is moving directly into the course of a great iron-hulled freighter. The Princess Alice ploughs on, her paddle wheels biting into the rank, sewage-polluted waters of the Thames. What unfolds over the next few terrible minutes will be a tragedy for the city, but an opportunity for Elizabeth Stride. It may be the first time she has benefited from the misfortune of others, but it will not be the last before she meets her murderer on the streets of Whitechapel. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. You're listening to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold a series about the real lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper and how we got their stories so wrong. One side money plenty And friends tooth by the score Then fortune smiled upon me Elizabeth Gustav's daughter was born by candlelight in the darkness of a Swedish November. 
Her father tended the land in rural Torslanda, cultivating fields of grain, flax and potatoes. He also owned a barn, several cows, pigs, chickens and a horse. The family was more prosperous than many in the area, and Elizabeth grew up in a sturdy clapboard farmhouse. As a farmer's daughter in the 1840s, she would have been initiated into the routine of agricultural life as soon as she was steady enough on her feet to carry pails and gather eggs. When she grew older, she would have assisted with milking, tending the chickens and pigs, making butter, and even distilling aquavit, the alcoholic liquor traditionally offered at mealtimes in Swedish households. Elizabeth's local community was small and conservative. She was raised a Lutheran, and prayer would have punctuated her days, upon waking, before meals, and before bed, asking the Lord to shepherd his flock safely through the long night. As a girl, little was expected of her beyond mastery of housekeeping, childcare, and basic animal husbandry, all of which she could learn from assisting her mother. She therefore received little schooling. Elizabeth probably grew accustomed to the constant rhythm of farm life. The turning of the seasons, the cutting of the fields, the freezing of the earth, the thaw, the sowing of seeds. But just before her 17th birthday, everything changed. Elizabeth set out for the city of Gothenburg to seek employment as a servant. In Sweden, as in other European countries, it was traditional for young women to gain experience of domestic life beyond the confines of their homes and communities. This was seen as a kind of apprenticeship before they eventually assumed command of their own households. Elizabeth went to work as a maid for a lower middle class family. Domestic labour at this time was cheap and in plentiful supply, so even families of meagre means could afford to hire help. Employers were obliged to house, feed, clothe and tend to their servants when they were ill. In return, servants offered their complete obedience. Yet choosing and hiring a servant could also be risky. Bringing unknown young women into the home could have unpredictable consequences. There was a preference for the ruddy-cheeked daughters of yeomen who smelled like grass and goats. It was believed that these girls had not yet learned how to deceive or steal. They were innocent and honest. By contrast, urban girls had been exposed to avarice and licentiousness. Although it was a master or mistress's responsibility to keep them safe, peril nonetheless lurked at every turn for maidservants. Whether or not she encouraged the advances of the master or his son, his brother, cousin, friend or father, there were plenty of opportunities for a young servant woman to find herself alone with men, to be coerced, overpowered, or to give in to mutual desire. And so, while service was believed to be the making of a young working-class woman, becoming entangled with a man could be her undoing. Some women's lovers would promise to look after them, and many made good on these pledges, establishing their mistresses in lodgings. Some men lived alongside their paramours, and they posed as married couples. Others visited only on occasion. Some relationships continued for many years, if not a lifetime, but many more fell apart within weeks. The 19th century double standard enabled men to walk away from such attachments. By contrast, it often devastated the lives of the women who were left to bear the crying and gurgling consequences of these unions. Elizabeth has taken to the grave the name of the man who altered her life with his lust, 
it will never be known whether her first encounter with him was consensual or forced, where it occurred or under what circumstances. But by March 1865, she was six months pregnant, and whoever had got her into that position was no longer present to shield her from the consequences. Until the 1860s in Sweden, extramarital sex and illegitimate pregnancy were illegal, punishable offences. In fact, across all Europe and its colonies, sexual immorality was a source of anxiety verging on paranoia. In Gothenburg, the prostitution police were charged with placing women on the sex trade register, colloquially referred to as the Register of Shame. There were two lists, one containing the names of acknowledged prostitutes and the other of suspected women, pregnant single women, women frequently seen alone with men or out at night, and mistresses. The chief concern was the spread of venereal disease, specifically syphilis, and bad women were seen as responsible for its spread. This belief was then used to justify the harsh treatment of women in legislation designed to prevent infection. When her pregnancy began to show, it was surmised that 21-year-old Elizabeth was guilty of lecherous living. She was ordered to appear at the police inspection house. On her first visit, she was entered into the official register as Public Woman Number 97. She was then further questioned, and her answers included in the ledger. Age, 21 years. Appearance, blue eyes, brown hair, straight nose, oval face. Five foot two inches. Slender build. I surmise that this woman has not been living a life of gluttony. The rules that were to govern Elizabeth's daily life would then have been explained to her, a lecture intended to humiliate her. You will attend the inspection house twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays, or face arrest and a fine, or three nights in prison on rations of bread and water. You will not be permitted outdoors after 11 at night. You must conduct a quiet and a silent life. You must not loiter in the windows or doorway of your home. You must dress in a decent way when appearing in public and not call attention to yourself. At the police inspection house, Elizabeth would have been subjected to regular examinations of her genitalia. This routine was designed as much to chasten the city's public women as to screen them against the dreaded syphilis. Syphilis is transmitted primarily through sexual intercourse, and it has three key stages in its acquired form, primary, secondary and tertiary. Anne Hanley is a lecturer in the history of science and medicine at Birkbeck, University of London. The primary stage is characterised by the presence of a soft sore or a canker at the site of infection. So in most cases, this would have been on a person's genitals. And you know, this sore could appear you know, a couple of weeks to several months after infection, and it would last for a short period of time and then disappear. And when it disappeared, the patient moved into a period of, of disease latency. The secondary stage could occur anywhere from several months to several years later. Patients would experience flu-like symptoms, a fever, swollen glands, a sore throat, and then the eruption of a rash, as well as wart-like growths and lesions on their genitals. Eventually, it would attack the person's central nervous system. Sufferers might experience behavioural changes, including paranoia and mood swings, deterioration of the spinal cord and seizures. There were other visible symptoms as well. The soft tissue in a person's face begins to break down, this type of necrotic deterioration, where a person's nose 
disintegrates, essentially, as does their soft palate and parts of their frontal lobe. Syphilis affected fertility too, and could be passed on to a fetus before birth, so-called congenital syphilis. In the days before antibiotics, this was a terrible disease. So as to avoid giving offence to Gothenburg's respectable citizens, all suspected and known public women were required to enter the police inspection house through a concealed rear passage. Get in line. Once inside, they had to strip naked and form a line. Sometimes, if the wait was a long one, they were ordered to stand in the outdoor courtyard, shivering in the cold as the uniformed officers stood over them. For a young woman who had been raised in a religious community, the indignity of the experience would have been shocking. However, as Elizabeth was pregnant with an illegitimate child, she may well, like so many women of her era, have internalised her punishment as a justifiable one. Elizabeth can only have been subjected to this routine a handful of times before it was discovered that she was presenting the symptoms of syphilis. She was immediately admitted to the Cahuzit, or Cure House, the local venereal disease hospital. These treatment centres, also known as lock hospitals, were designed for poor people. A stay here carried profound stigma. And this was in part a deterrent as well. Like the shame and stigma that accompanied entry into a workhouse, a similar stigma existed for the lock hospitals. And these were institutions that were often seriously underfunded, understaffed, and lacked the facilities needed to be able to provide people with effective care, even by Victorian standards. Patients at these institutions were effectively imprisoned, hence the name Lock Hospital. Some women entered voluntarily, but many were incarcerated against their will. At Gothenburg's Cure House, attendants and nurses used force to subdue patients. It was also overcrowded, and when the number of patients exceeded capacity, inmates were made to sleep on the floor. Mercury was the go-to treatment for syphilis at this time. The standard forms were an ointment, pill or tonic, but doctors also experimented with other modes of administration. Fumigation, I think, is the best way to describe it. So you'd sit in essentially something that looked a bit like a steam room and mercury-infused vapours would be pumped in and you'd sit there and you sort of absorb it through your skin. There was no standardised dosage for mercury. Doctors saw its administration as an art rather than a science. It was also highly toxic and potentially deadly. Severe mercury poisoning could result in everything from loosened to lost teeth and fettered breath, all the way through to hair loss and changed mental state. Very similar symptoms to what you might expect in the later stages of syphilis itself. Pregnant Elizabeth was spared mercury, but treated internally with acid while her genital warts would have been dehydrated or cut off. After receiving this cure for 17 days, she went into premature labour. Elizabeth gave birth to a stillborn girl at seven months, while under lock and key at the cure house. A birth certificate was still required. The space for the father's name was left blank. Methods of treating syphilis varied between countries, but they shared an underlying concept – women should shoulder the blame for its transmission. If the state could control the morally corrupt woman, the disease's spreaders, 
then the problem would be isolated. Sexually transmitted disease involves two parties, of course, but male carriers were exempt from regulation. Unfortunately, the idea that women, specifically female sex workers, are solely responsible for the spread of disease and should be punished for it is one that we haven't left behind. There's been a long history of sex workers being imprisoned under public health justifications. Grace is a sex worker from the UK who contacted me after reading my work on Elizabeth's life. People fear that we will be seen as vectors of disease. So unfortunately, these attitudes do still persist. And clients let you know about it. Believe me, they'll say things and you just think, oh, piss off, mate. Do you know what I mean? In Elizabeth's time, as for Grace today... Attitudes and fears around the spread of disease caused women real physical harm too. Syphilis inspections were brutally rapid. 50 women might be examined using the same medical instrument in less than two hours, says Anne Hanley. And that speculum was then passed to the attending nurse who sort of cursorily disinfected it for use on the next patient. There's no way that these diagnostic examinations were thorough and there's no way that they were hygienic. In many cases, women who may not have had a venereal disease were being infected by the very process of examination to determine whether or not they were infected. Even if women seemed to respond to the rudimentary cures on offer and were released from the hospital, their slate wasn't wiped clean. Criminal convictions followed those who had been inmates at lock hospitals. And once a woman appeared on a police register, she would not be able to secure respectable work. One of the only ways that she could actually sustain herself would be to resort to the profession she had been accused of practising, prostitution. Come inside. Elizabeth joined the ranks of women who sold themselves on a notorious Gothenburg thoroughfare known mockingly as the Street of Many Nymphs. Don't stand out there in the cold. As open solicitation on the street was forbidden, she would have traded discreetly indoors, at a brothel perhaps, or in a coffee house. Elizabeth had been publicly denounced as a whore, had suffered the indignity of police examination, had discovered she carried a potentially deadly and disfiguring disease, and had been incarcerated and subjected to excruciating medical procedures. Estranged from her family and from respectable life, she had then been released onto the street, with no friend to whom she could turn in the city. It was now that the symptoms of syphilis returned, and medical incarceration was ordered once more. But just when things looked to be at their bleakest, an opportunity appeared. One that would change Elizabeth's life forever. The Ripper Retold will be back in just a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Sweden, like many European countries, was witnessing a swell of interest in rescuing prostitutes. Middle and upper-class women sought to rehabilitate back into Christian life those who would otherwise have been lost to God. During one visit to the Cahuzet, Elizabeth was picked out by Maria Wiesner, the wife of a German musician. The Wiesners were looking for a reasonably priced maid, and they offered Elizabeth a job. This was an exceptional stroke of good fortune. According to the law, employment in domestic service was the only way, outside of marriage, that a woman on the police register could have her name removed and thereby recover her life and her reputation. That process of having one's name struck from the register of shame required an employer to write a letter of surety to the police. Maria Wiesner did just this. The servant maid, Elizabeth Gustafsson, was engaged in my service on November the 10th and I am responsible for her good conduct as long as she stays in my service. Public woman number 97 was no more. And then Elizabeth received a further opportunity to reinvent herself. Trade links between Gothenburg and Britain meant that the city was home to a dynamic British community. It was likely through this expat enclave that Elizabeth learned of a position for a maidservant wishing to travel with a British family back to London. Although Elizabeth was no longer on the police register or working as a prostitute, there were reminders of her former life everywhere in Gothenburg. As long as she remained in the city, she would never escape her past. And so the possibility of beginning again in London as a housemaid to an affluent family, must have seemed a gift from Providence. Elizabeth was still just 22 years old. On the day she departed Sweden, snow lay thickly along the streets and the canals were slicked with ice. At the port, 
Dock workers, sailors and passengers were swathed in wool and fur against the sharp cold. As the peaks and domes of the city's skyline diminished from view, she could not have felt much remorse. Gothenburg had left a cruel mark upon her, one that would always remain, no matter where she called home. When she arrived in London, Elizabeth lived in an elegant townhouse near one of the city's royal parks, where she worked for a prosperous cosmopolitan family. As a young woman in London with an exotic foreign accent, a high forehead and dark, wavy hair, she would have caught the eye of many admirers. A policeman courted her for a while, but due to the long hours she worked, this relationship failed to blossom. It's possible that an all-too-familiar scandal led Elizabeth to eventually quit or lose her job. She has been linked to her employer's brother, though we cannot be sure what occurred or who instigated it. Next, Elizabeth went to work for one Mrs. Bond, who ran a genteel lodging house near the furniture district, where the scent of freshly cut mahogany and oak perfumed the air. Mrs. Bond let furnished rooms to a respectable clientele. As a well-trained Swedish maid, Elizabeth would have conferred a certain sophistication on her establishment, though the drudgery of her chores would have been no different. One day, Elizabeth was noticed by a 47-year-old carpenter named John Stride. Perhaps they crossed paths on multiple occasions, on the street, moving to and from work, or in the wooden stalls of the local coffee house, drinking a dark, sugared brew. Whatever the case, by the early months of 1869, the pair was engaged. Elizabeth was 25 at this point, and her fiancé, almost twice her age, was likely turning grey. John, who had been a bachelor for many years, would have had money put aside. He was also a teetotaler from a religious Methodist family. After Elizabeth's tumultuous past and her experiences of the harm that men could do her, he may well have seemed like a safe and solid choice. As a woman, and one on her own in a strange country, Elizabeth knew she would have to marry soon. They wed quickly. On the register, Elizabeth gave a false name for her father, a move typical of an immigrant who wished for no shadows of her former life to fall upon this new chapter. A cup of hot coffee and a penny roll, please. This fresh beginning was marked by a new adventure for the Strides. They opened their own coffee house. These establishments offered simple meals of chops, kidneys, bread and butter, pickles and eggs, along with cups of sugared coffee. No alcohol was served. One observer notes... They are convenient to thousands of persons who have not the comforts of domesticity at home. The food, fire, the bright light, the supply of newspapers and magazines and the cup of simple beverage are obtainable for a few pence. The Strides' hours were long ones. But for the first time, Elizabeth's scrubbing, cooking, washing and serving would have been performed not for the benefit of an employer, but for herself. Sadly, the business failed to thrive. The strides were likely to have encountered competition from pubs. In spite of the popularity of coffee houses, not every working man was prepared to abandon the alcohol and jolly camaraderie of the local public house. So they moved the location of their establishment, hoping to attract better trade. It's also likely that John was anticipating an inheritance from his wealthy but miserly father, 
However, when the old man passed away, John was written out of his will. The collapse of their first coffee house would likely have left a debt, and a second failing business would have only increased their arrears. In order to keep his concern afloat, John may have borrowed money, quite probably against the promise of inheriting property. When his father's will left him disappointed, there was nothing to be done but shut the door for good on their hopes and dreams of betterment. John and Elizabeth had no children in the years they were married. Elizabeth's syphilis would have put her at high risk of miscarriage and stillbirth. She may also have been too ashamed to confide in John about the disease, simply wishing to bury her past. Bringing syphilis into the marital home was a social disgrace and a tragedy, says medical historian Anne Hanley. A woman who is seeking respectability and trying to put an unrespectable past behind her would not want to dredge up old ghosts when sort of embarking on that new life. So it wouldn't surprise me that she didn't tell him. And also when we think about the trajectory of syphilis, you know, with those periods of latency, passing through the secondary stage and then it disappearing for decades, it's possible that she would have assumed herself to be free of disease or at least free of a disease that was communicable to other people. So she may not have even seen a need to tell him there would have been social repercussions for both Elizabeth and John if her syphilis and her sexual past outside of marriage had been known. I think there was an assumption also that a woman who deviated from this standard role of sort of pure femininity was in some way deranged. And a man who wanted to marry a woman who had done this must also be deranged. You know, this is all tied up with the assumption that a woman's sexuality is very much bound to her reproductive capacity and that if she's not having sex for the purposes of having children, there's something wrong with her. Elizabeth's failure to become a mother in an era when a woman's identity and purpose was defined by her fertility would have been devastating to her. The strides marriage soured. The financial hardship wrought by the collapse of their business and their inability to produce children may have contributed to friction between them. It is also likely that Elizabeth had begun to drink. Eight years after their union, Elizabeth left John. She now had to use her wits to survive, and she alighted on a new method of supporting herself. Fraud. The Ripper Retold will be back in just a moment. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping 
lower scores, and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. On the deck of the Princess Alice, the ship's band played a rousing polka, and couples gathered to dance and sing. Children chased each other across the slippery wooden floors, and gentlemen read their newspapers, lulled by the mild evening. Others were retiring to the cabins below deck. But the Bywell Castle, a dark, hulking coal freighter, was closing fast. Her iron bow cut into the pleasure boat, slicing her in two. The polluted Thames water rushed into the great wound, and within minutes, the Princess Alice had disappeared. Panic-stricken survivors clung to any flotsam they could find. Bobbing heads gasped for breath in the putrid water and cried out to loved ones. Hundreds drowned or died later from the effects of their time in the Thames. Bodies littered the river and shoreline for days. But such chaos presents opportunities for some. There was no headcount taken of the people who went on the boat, so they were never entirely sure who had been on it, which made it easier for people to claim that, oh, my husband, my wife, they were on board, they drowned. Because how would you disprove that? Nell Darby is a crime historian. There were so many unscrupulous claims as a result of that disaster, you know, and so many claims rejected. And part of the issue is, of course, that the, the relief fund was widely advertised. People knew there was going to be money, there was going to be compensation. Survivors and the families of the dead were urged to come forward and claim that compensation. In the weeks that followed the calamity, many invented sorrowful tales of their own in an effort to cash in. Elizabeth, it seems, was among them. She spun an elaborate yarn, coloured with detail and drama designed to beguile the listener. Elizabeth claimed that she had been aboard the Princess Alice with John and two of their nine children. When the pleasure cruiser was struck, they were separated. John had attempted to save the children, but they were all snatched away by the river and drowned. 
Elizabeth, who found herself within one of the ship's collapsing funnels, saw a rope that had been dropped by another boat and grabbed for it. In climbing to safety, she was kicked in the mouth by a man above her, which damaged her palate. It's possible that, at this point in telling her tall tale, Elizabeth revealed her syphilis-ravaged mouth. She went on to say that life as a widow was fraught with hardship and her remaining seven children were in an orphanage. Elizabeth's name does not appear on the list of survivors in the records of the Relief Fund. It is more likely that she peddled her story to concerned individuals who might offer handouts. In the ensuing years, she would retell this tale enough times to convince everyone around her of its veracity. Alone, she moved to Whitechapel and began working as a charwoman or day servant for Jewish families there. As recent immigrants who had escaped persecution in Russia, Prussia and Ukraine, most of these families did not speak English, and so she learned to communicate with them in Yiddish. Working for Jewish families would have also offered Elizabeth some modicum of security. Fellow immigrants were not usually eager to discuss their pasts, and they were therefore unlikely to make any inquiries into hers. At this point, Elizabeth had learnt that shedding identities was simple. She was Swedish, but she could speak English well enough to fool people. She may also have claimed to be Irish at times, using the name Annie Fitzgerald. And then, in 1883, fate threw the 39-year-old Elizabeth into the path of a woman named Mary Malcolm, a tailoress. Years spent squinting over a needle had ruined Mrs. Malcolm's eyesight. Her attraction to the bottle probably didn't help matters. One day, perhaps on the street or in a pub, she glimpsed Elizabeth's stride and was convinced it was her estranged sister. Elizabeth. Mary had probably called out her sister's name. Elizabeth. And Elizabeth had duly and conveniently answered. The mistaken identity stuck, in part because Elizabeth was all too pleased to use this new relationship to her advantage. Knowing that her real long-lost sister had led a hard life, including at least two marriages and a period spent in an asylum, Mary was inclined to believe that the by now bedraggled and impoverished Elizabeth was this same person. Mary felt compelled to assist her, and for the next five years, the two women met at least once a week. Every Saturday at four o'clock, Mary handed over two shillings, the equivalent of over $50 today. At one point, Elizabeth left a naked baby girl outside Mary's door. Mary naturally concluded that this was Elizabeth's child and therefore her niece, though it was more likely that Elizabeth had temporarily acquired the infant for the purposes of begging. Such begging scams were common. They were one of the many ways that destitute women made ends meet. Crucially, women tended to target other women. Prostitution was very much a last resort for these women. If they could find another way to get some money in, then that's what they would do. So you've got women who go out claiming that their husband's broken their leg, can't work anymore, and they need financial support. You've got women claiming that they've been left stranded in England and they need to get back to their country of origin. Can they have some money to help them do that? And these women tend to target other women who are just passing by. 
they'll see the women and they immediately start feigning illness or feigning some sort of situation to get those women's sympathy. And as part of that, you've then got these begging scams where they kind of use a child or the pretense of a child to get sympathy. So you get some women who go along with their own children and saying, oh, my my son or daughter's ill. Can you give me money? But then you've got women who also kind of bundle up rags, hide them under their shawl. And when they see a woman walking past, pretend to be talking to the child and saying, oh, you know, my poor child, they're really ill. They're really sick. Can you give me money? Some women would even go out and hire sick children, particularly those with a bad cough. They would take the child with them and knock on doors asking for money. This was a well-known ruse designed to tug on both the heart and the purse strings. Elizabeth eventually returned for the baby. Later, when Mary asked after the infant, Elizabeth lied and said that she had taken the girl to live with family in another city. Mary would meet Elizabeth in secret, and she never invited her into her home. Perhaps deep down, Mary had her suspicions about Elizabeth's true identity, but so long as she kept Elizabeth at arm's length, she could continue to fool herself. Elizabeth was secretive and deceitful. She'd learned how to milk human gullibility for financial gain. There may have been something else going on here, too. See, I wonder with Elizabeth whether it's also about her identity, trying to find an identity for herself, trying to get sympathy or affection of other people in a way that she hadn't had in her earlier life. When she comes to London, she's always trying to seek that, trying to get sympathy for people, not just for monetary reasons, but she's trying to recreate herself in a way, trying to get herself an identity where people care about her and worry about her. Then Elizabeth lost one of the few people in her life who had cared about her. John's health had been deteriorating for some time. He was admitted to a workhouse infirmary where he died of heart disease, aged 63. Over the years, John and Elizabeth had reconnected again and again, and then separated again and again too. After his burial, Elizabeth's life began spiralling rapidly downward. Desperate for money, she appears to have returned to the type of labour she had abandoned so many years ago in Sweden, selling sex. Elizabeth's name appears on the ledges of the magistrate's court for soliciting sex on the street in 1884. The court felt there was enough evidence to convict her, and she was sentenced to seven days' hard labour. Shortly afterwards, Elizabeth met another man, a dock worker called Michael Kidney, Their relationship was a violent one. The pair rented a series of dingy rooms together in Whitechapel. Both enjoyed drinking to excess, and in the years leading up to her murder, Elizabeth was repeatedly arrested not for soliciting, but for drunken disorderliness and obscene language. Her erratic and violent behaviour can be attributed in part to her drinking, but there may have been something else at work here too. It had been over 20 years since Elizabeth had contracted syphilis, and the disease may well have been attacking her brain and nervous system as part of its final phase. She had also begun to suffer from epileptic seizures. Elizabeth had recognised that the world didn't care about her or about what happened to her, and she chose to use this to her advantage. She weaponised her anonymity, reinventing herself at will. 
Did anyone truly know Elizabeth Stride? As the summer of 1888 turned to autumn, the opportunities for anyone to forge a genuine connection with this sick and troubled woman were fading fast. Elizabeth's shadowy life on the margins was about to put her directly into the path of a murderer. Bad Women The Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Rubenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. You also heard the voice talents of Saul Boyer, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, and Daniela Lacan. With special thanks to my agents, Sarah Ballard and Ellie Karen. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.